Good morning, I'm Jason, and this is my daughter, Naomi. My wife, Heather, and I have four kids. Naomi is our oldest daughter. And I was very excited for the opportunity to have a Mother's Day reflection, mainly because when Michael emailed me, it reminded me that it was Mother's Day. So, uh, yeah, so we're each going to read a little thing. Mother's Day can mean many things. To some, it is a time of celebration and gratitude for the person who raised us. And for others, it's a time of hurt, as a storybook mom was someone we never knew. For moms, the day can be filled with hope and joy, but it can also be a reminder of the pain and grief that comes from a loss. It can be a day of cut flowers and handmade cards as you smile with satisfaction of living out your calling. And for others, the day is a reminder that being a mom is nothing like you imagined. Motherhood looks a million different ways, but no matter what your perspective and no matter what you are feeling coming into Mother's Day, it's hard It's hard to ignore the place in our souls where the very idea of a mom lives. Why is this? Why are moms so important to us? They feed us and clothe us and tuck us in at night, of course, but moms are more. In a mom, we see what it means to love someone unconditionally. We spot slivers of compassion and justice and mercy. We catch glimpses of grace and reflections of beauty and wisdom and goodness. We feel the warm embrace of forgiveness with no questions asked. And we find someone who's willing to listen to all of our struggles and calm our fears. God didn't give us moms just to kiss bumps and bandage scrapes. They aren't here only to cheer from the sidelines and give standing ovations. No, God gave us moms to remind us of who he is. Through moms, we see the grand characteristics of God on full display in tiny specks throughout our lives. And in this, we are reminded that we are loved beyond anything we can imagine. Thank you for these wonderful mothers. They have done everything for us. They cook, they feed us, they make sure we are safe. They take us to the park, they give us ice cream, and sometimes dads don't because they don't want us having sugar. What I mean is that mothers care for us the most because they love us in every way. They are very special to us. Don't you think so? God loves you, mothers, and so do we. Moms take us shopping, dads don't. So why do we love mothers? Because they are awesome. We love you, mom. Okay, let's pray. (laughs) Uh, Heavenly Father, we pray for those who are um, experiencing Mother's Day as a time of longing as they desire to mother. We pray for those who have experienced the happiness of motherhood only to be faced with inexplicable loss and for those who have lost their mother. We pray for those who chose to place their child for adoption and for those who gave birth but are not raising their child. We ask, Lord, that you would provide these women with a sense of wholeness, that you would provide them with a sense of peace and joy that can only come from you, and that through them we would see a reflection of beauty and love. And, Father, we ask today not be filled with sorrow, but instead be filled with hope and celebration as we gather as a church family. And, Father, we thank you for the moms in this congregation. Thank you for their leadership in our church. Thank you for their willingness to serve, for their hospitality, their fighting spirit, and their constant prayers of protection. And thank you that through them, through them, we see parts of your character and are reminded of your love. Amen. Good morning, church. Uh, my name is Andy. This is my son, Dashiell, and we'll be reading the teaching text today. Our teaching text this morning is from the gospel according to Matthew, chapters 4 and 9. And this is 1 Matthew 4, verse 18 through 22. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee... He saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. 
Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them and immediately left the boat, and their fathers followed them. And now Matthew 9, verses 9 through 13. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Happy Mother's Day. This is the word of the Lord. On the surface, you've probably heard uh, these, these exact uh, moments in the Gospels before, or moments like them. These are simple moments where Jesus is, is calling. Uh, we actually have five of the 12 disciples called in, the, in those uh, two short, uh, short accounts. Um, very simple on the surface. He calls them to follow. They leave what they're doing, and they follow him. And um, that's... That's what it is, and um, it's. I actually hate the phrase. That's it is what it is. You guys know, like someone like something complicated happens, and then they just say it is what it is. Please don't do that to me. I do not like that. Um, but uh, it is what it is here. Um, but if if you ask even just the tiniest little question, uh, why on earth do they do this? Uh, this is what I always think. Like why. Why would they be willing to, to, to leave? And it, it mentions some of the things that they leave to follow Jesus. They leave their businesses. It seems like they sort of leave their property. And I hope they tie up the boats and stuff before they do. But they leave their businesses. They leave their property. On some level, they're leaving their families for a time. Uh, so, so why on earth would you do that if some person come, just came up and asked you to do that? I'm imagining if, if someone came up and asked you to, to, to come and follow them and leave behind those things, you more than likely would tell them in, in a very New York way, probably with some swear words, to get lost. Um, and so when we start to ask or start to answer those types of questions around why they actually do follow Jesus, then we know it's not just a simple story. There are, there are layers to it. Um, that, that, that are important. So Jesus comes up to these first four guys, uh, uh, Peter and Andrew, James and John, and they're in some sort of fishing partnership together. And he asks them all to come and follow him. And they leave their, their nets, they leave their father, they leave the business and they come and follow him. And then he comes to Matthew in the second story. This is Matthew 9. So Ma- Matthew 4 is the four fishermen and the Matthew 9 is... is um, is Matthew the tax collector, and you, you hear like people um, uh, accusing Jesus of, of not understanding the reality because he's hanging out with, with tax collectors, and I know many of you, this will be totally familiar, but tax collector was the most despised profession that you could have as, as a Jewish man in this particular time. Um, it represented so many things. It meant that just, just by doing your job, you were a sellout to your people. 
All the promises that God had made to your nation seemed to be on delay because there was the occupying power of Rome, the dominant force in your region. There had been other empires before Rome, but, but Rome is in charge, and, they, and you know it every single time. You know, Peter and Andrew, James and John would have come off of their fishing uh, expeditions with their, their catch. There was a part of their catch that they literally had to, 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 um, to, to give away in taxes to Rome. And so the tax collectors were those who went door to door, family to family, amongst their neighbors, who they knew before Rome came in and said, I know how much this family makes. Don't let them hide from you what they should be taxed. And so they were truly despised. So Jesus calls five of the 12 in these two short stories. Four of them are fishermen. One of them is a tax collector. And, and my question to you, my question that I turn over in my own mind is, what was so intriguing about Jesus that led these folks to leave so much to follow him? And what I kind of do, I don't know if you kind of do this, but I imagine kind of like a movie version of this happening where Jesus basically just has a magical gaze do you, do you do this like Jesus comes up and he's sort of like, there's just an aura about him. Like he's got the Birkenstocks on and the long hair and the pale face and he's serious. And he just comes up to them and he sees them. And he says, follow me. And then he holds eye contact too long. And at first they think, no, I'll just go on being a fisherman. But then he turns his head this way. And then he turns his head this way. And he says again, follow me. And this time they must follow him because of the magical gaze that he gave them. He gave them the magical gaze of heaven and they have to, they have to follow him. But, but actually there's no, this is going to shock you, in the original language there's no recording of a magical gaze. Um, uh, he doesn't actually say, say anything like that. So, so truly then what is it? If he's not using like, you know, like the Jedi mind trick, these are not the droids you're looking for, like so, sort of thing on them. What, what's, what's, what's going on? Well, we know from the details of the other Gospels that Jesus had actually engaged with these, these people he's calling in some sort of unexpected way before he issues them the follow me call, calling. So that, that's really important. The first with the, the, the fishermen is there's a, ma, a, a huge catch of fish that takes place. And this is recorded. You kind of can't just get the one picture from the one gospel. We're looking through all of these lenses and we're getting the full account of Jesus's life. But these fishermen had, had fished all night long. They were experienced fishermen. This was their livelihood. This was their trade. They were exhausted. How many of you have, um, have worked hard all night long? <laughs> yeah, go, yeah, let's put our hands up. Let's just and look around and just know who's tough in this place, okay? Um, it's, it's, <laughs> I, one of my sons has his hand up, and I'm just like, that's not true. You've literally never worked hard all night long. And I bless you, and you're awesome, but you haven't. Um, <laughs> The exhaustion, can you imagine like how you're sort of aching in your bones and you're tired and you're cold, you've been on the water, you've been dragging these nets in and out, and now you've finally gotten back to the shore, maybe you folded the last of the nets, your, your muscles are aching, you're ready just to trudge back to wherever you're going to rest your bones and lie down, and Jesus comes up to them at that moment, who <laughs> has no business whatsoever in their world, in this field, and he says, listen, I want you to do some more fishing. 
And they, and they some, for some reason, I don't know, magical gaze or whatever, they do it. They're, they, they, they push out from the shore. They go out, and there's this, this magical, there's this miraculous, powerful thing that takes place where there's more fish than they can even pull in. And suddenly, something does register with them that he's beginning to show them that he can provide for them, meet the needs of their life, maybe even meet the needs uh, below the surface that they're, uh, of, their, uh, of their conscious awareness, but meet their needs but they're going to have to trust, trust him to do that. And so the call to follow comes, comes quickly on the heels of that. The second unexpected thing is, is sort of a, a scandal, actually. Um, Jesus shows up, as I mentioned before, being a tax collector was the most despised profession that you could have as a Jewish person in this time. Uh, if, you're a, if you're a Jewish person, you had sold out to the occupying force of Rome. And it says that Jesus showed up at Matthew's tax collector booth. Like he goes to the scene of the perpetual crime and says to Matthew, I want you to follow me. And it seems like after that, they're having some sort of festivity that now Matthew's is going to do this. He's leaving the tax collector booth, which more than likely was making him certainly wealthy. And they're throwing a party and Jesus is there and they're having dinner at Matthew's house and people come and critique him because they say, why are there so many unsavory characters here? And Jesus sort of like pushes them back verbally by saying, I have come for, for those who need me. Like, it's not, it's not the well who need a doctor, it's the, it's the sick. Go and look and figure out what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So it doesn't actually sound like Jesus had a, had a magical gaze, but he does begin to show them that he can be a disrupting force in the ecosystem of the needs of their lives being met. Many of you, when you encounter Jesus... It will, be a dis, it will be a disruption, or it will be an offer to be a disruption of the ecosystem that you have gotten used to of the needs of your lives being met, the inputs and the outputs that make you thrive as a human being, that make you say, this is a good life or a bad life. Uh, I have what I need or I don't have what I need. I'm, I'm fulfilled or I'm deeply longing. I'm satisfied or I'm aching for something more. That ecosystem is going to be disrupted when Jesus steps into it. That's the account that we get in these disciples' lives, and that's the account that many of you will be able to give testimony to as well. So he comes and he says, follow me, after he had sort of... R- thrown a wrench in the system of what they normally use to meet the needs of their life. So he doesn't necessarily have a magical gaze, but he does use on one level magical words. He says, follow me. And for us, that looks on the surface like such simple language. But if, if you do a, a little dive into the scholarship around this language and the context of what he's saying, this is the exact language that a rabbi would use to call disciples or to call apprentices to come and study under a rabbi who would train to be rabbis themselves. So the process of being a rabbi was, and I won't get into this too much, but th- there's a basic level of schooling that all the Jewish boys would have gone to, and then there was a, a, a culling process by which they, the rabbi said, listen, some of you are, are fit for more education. We're going to bring you along. The rest of you need to go home and learn your father's trade. And once that, once that process had happened, then there was uh, more training, more education, then another calling process. And they would say, and, then, and only the finest of the fine, only the most, those representing the most potential would be invited into a process of training with the rabbis directly. And then eventually, amongst a group of rabbis, one rabbi would come to these elite students and say, follow me. And that was an invitation 
invitation into relationship with that rabbi by which you would become. And in the beginning, all you did was like intern duties. You just copied the scribes. You were not allowed to comment to the rabbi. You were not allowed to give commentary on, on the Hebrew. You, you, and then eventually as you progressed along, you would, you would be allowed to, to write. And then, and, and then you would write the rabbi's commentary. And then, you would, then eventually at the very end, you would be allowed to give your own thoughts on Torah. And then you would become a rabbi. And then you would begin the process of inviting rabbis, other, other students, elite students who had made it through all these stages to come and follow you. But Jesus strolls up and he's probably a carpenter or a mason. We have no evidence whatsoever that he had been a part of this official rabbi training process. And yet he walks up to these fishermen who definitely had not been a part of this official rabbi training process. And he says to them, in the magic words of the rabbi, follow me. And it's a little out of place. And Jesus does this a bunch where he starts to say an official sort of uh, liturgy of his culture in, some, in a way that is out of place. And people turn their heads to the side and all of a sudden they have a magic gaze. And they're holding his, his eyes a little too long. And they're saying, what, what on earth is, is, is going on? He comes out of relative obscurity, a, a fellow laborer like them. And he calls these people to follow to follow him, and and they do. They follow Jesus, and somehow also we follow Jesus. I want to tell you, we're actually trying to follow Jesus, even in how we have sketched out this this sermon series. Uh, It says, this little note in the the beginning of the book of Acts, that that Jesus spent time, the 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus spent that time telling his followers about the kingdom of God. That all that he, I mean, he'd been telling them. He begins his ministry saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent or reorient your entire life around this reality that's breaking into the world. He had taught what the kingdom was in the Sermon on the Mount. He had taught what the kingdom was in the parables. He'd shown what the kingdom of God was in his miracles. But then eventually after the resurrection, like after the sort of like this new lens by which you can see everything in a new light had happened, he spent those 40 days talking about the kingdom of God. And so we're trying to do the exact same thing. So if you've been tracking with us, this is is week three after Easter of our Easter Tide series, and we're trying to move in and, and concentric circles into a narrower and narrower place. The first week we did a wide survey. What is the kingdom of God across the whole of the scriptures? And then we narrowed down into Jesus' life. When Jesus was asked to summarize the Torah and the prophets of Israel, what did he say? Like they lay this trap for him. They say, tell us what it's all about. And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Widest vision of the kingdom starting to narrow into it is a relational kingdom. It is a kingdom of love. And then this week, inside of this relational kingdom of love, what's the most primary? Relationships don't all weigh the same. We know this. What is the primary relationship that defines this community? And we're at it right now. It is, are we going to be followers of Jesus? When Jesus comes to you and says, follow me, what will your response be? And I want to get into this, and I'm realizing almost even right now that we're going to need to do it over two parts. So I'm going to improvise, you're going to improvise, and we're going to, it's going to be like a dance. Um, but 
to, to quickly before we get into how, how do we do, like I want to get incredibly practical with you this morning. Like we're trying to do the greatest hits of our church. The thing we are most primary about, primarily about is joining God in the renewal of all things. We are trying to participate in the kingdom of God coming in Brooklyn in 2019 on earth as it is in heaven. This is everything for us. And it is a relational kingdom. Love is at the center of the Trinity. Love is at the center of our church. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the most important relationship that, that we have is that Jesus comes to us and mediates all this other relationship with, with, with God. This is our starting point when he says, come and follow me. So to get into this, I want to answer two, two questions that I think are really important. They come up for me a lot. And I know each of them is not going to have the, the exact same weight of bearing on each of your minds, but many of you will, will, will be concerned with this. And, and I want to hit them quickly. Two questions. One, is following Jesus what it means to be a Christian? Question one. Question two, are the disciples, the Jesus followers we see in the scriptures, the same type of disciples that we are? So I want to answer those two questions really quickly, and then I want to talk in the most practical terms this week and next week about how you actually follow, follow Jesus. So the first question, is following Jesus what it means to be a Christian? Some of you are like, of, of course, or some of you are like, what? Why would you even ask that question in that way? And, and part of it is because we have to pay attention to the time we, we are living in in the world, the culture that we are a, a, a part of. Many of you grew up hearing or you have heard recently, or you're sort of like the background mental energy of your mind, is that to be a Christian is to essentially answer the question, have you prayed to invite Jesus into your heart? Many of you, that is the vision of being a Christian that you, that you grew up with. Have you prayed to invite Jesus into your heart? Was there a time in the past where you believed a certain number of things about God that led you to pray to invite Jesus into your heart? And the primary benefit of that prayer is that you made an arrangement for after you die to go to the good place and be with God. And you, you basically, like, your whole thing is on, like, I did believe at a time and I prayed this prayer. And the reality is that many, many of us who have that vision of, of what it is to be a Christian have prayed some prayer at some point in, in our past where we invited Jesus into our heart or whatever the language you were given was. And it doesn't necessarily have very much tangible bearing on our everyday life. But the primary benefit is our passport is stamped for the next age, after we die, we're going to be in heaven. The only problem with that, as an understanding of what it means to be a Christian, is that it's not what Jesus talked about at all. That's a problem. And then it's not what the New Testament teaches at all. So the Western Christian, maybe American vision of you pray a prayer to sort out your afterlife with, by inviting Jesus into your heart, it's just not how the Bible does it at all. It's not what Jesus seems to be talking about. Instead, Jesus seems to be saying something like, follow me, follow me. And so I want to be very careful here, right? This is important and delicate ground we are walking on. Because to begin being a follower of Jesus, what I think it means to be a little Jesus, to be a Christian does often begin with a prayer. There is a time where it would be appropriate for you to have a DTR with God. 
and say, I've been circling around your ideas. I've been hearing you, but now you're coming to me early in the morning after I've been fishing, or now you're coming to me at the end of a church service at this conference or at this camp or as I'm walking down the street, and I'm feeling a personal invitation to come and follow you. And often that process does begin with a prayer of surrender and saying, yes, I say yes to you, God. Will you give me your forgiveness? Will the life that Jesus lived, the death that he died, his resurrection become my life, death and resurrection? I want in on the story. And sometimes it's exactly appropriate that those same sort of prayers we prayed as kids to invite Jesus into our heart would be the first step. It's the DTR with God to say, I'm in with you. I want to walk with you. But if we stop there and we say, that's it. You did it. You're a Christian. Good luck. See you in heaven. We totally miss what Jesus is, is, is about. Because that conversation is meant to begin a life of conversation, a life of relationship, a life of love and action that the Gospels most clearly describe as following Jesus. So, this is a question that sort of keeps me awake. I I, I said I was going to ask two questions. I'm slipping a third in quickly here. Don't worry about me. Um, But here's a question I have to ask pastorally a lot. Why am I... Or why are the people around me not following Jesus? Why am I or why are the people around me not following Jesus? Is it because they've had a reductionist view of Christianity at some point in their upbringing and they thought all they needed to do was invite Jesus into their heart and basically say, at some point I signed the contract of mental belief in my mind and that is going to be verified when I show up at the pearly gates and they're going to be like, where's your name on the list? Oh yeah, you did pray the prayer when you were eight, come on in. Or... Is there some other blockage at work in their life why, why, that, that makes for them not following, following Jesus? And, and here's a couple of the reasons I come up with for, for why I am not or other people are not following Jesus. And I'll just put them on the screen. Like information. Is there a piece of information that someone doesn't know about how to follow Jesus, how to live in a life of relational transformation where you're walking in step with this Jesus person and you're being transformed in the way that these early disciples were being transformed? Is there an information gap? Is there a a concern or care gap? Am I just simply apathetic? Like I basically have a lot of things in my life that almost work to make for a full abundant life. Like I might not be killing it, but I do have some things in my Netflix queue that I'd like to get to. And so I'm basically dealing with apathy. I'm not following Jesus because I have everything that I need. I have a Metro card that gets me to work. I have TV shows waiting for me. When I get home, I have the odd invite to hang with people. And that's basically what I think I could can expect. And then there's this, the, the, the next two, I, I think, go together is trust and obedience. Is there a gap where like God has invited you to a level of, of trust? He's basically said, I want you to leave these nets, or I want you to leave this addiction, or I want you to leave this job, or I want you to leave this relationship, or I want you to leave this way of thinking and follow me and trust me that I can meet your needs in a way that's beyond what you could possibly fathom in an abundant life sort of way. And you've been, you've been unwilling to do that. And you say, basically, no, thanks, God. I'll meet the deep needs of my life on my own, out of my own resources. So there's a trust and obedience dilemma. And many times God will bring you in a circle in your life back to the point where you get to say, will you obey this time? Will you trust on this particular matter? Will you believe me for your vocation, for your spouse, for your sense of well-being, for your sense of identity, for the gifting of your spiritual gifts that are going to define your life, for, for the provision of your rent? 
trust and obedience. And then there's distraction. Some of us are just like, yeah, I'm in with Jesus, but then like squirrel, you know? Um, and, and you're dealing with like, there's, we're immersed. It's like, I, I'm not doing anything bad, but you know, like I did like, you know, my screen time says that for 17 hours, I was liking things on the, on the internet. So it's like, I, and maybe some of those are even good and godly things, but there's a distraction. I'm not following Jesus because I'm doing something else and doing it all the time. Here's a huge one, pain. Some of you are like, I prayed that prayer when I was eight. I prayed that prayer when I was 10. I prayed that prayer last year and God hasn't seemed to come through. My family member still died. My spouse still left me. I still struggle with my addiction. I still struggle with anxiety or depression. I still r- wrestle under this diagnosis that I have. I'm disapp- I've been discipled by my disappointments most clearly in life. They have shaped me in a sense. I feel like I'm just following a pattern of turns that my dis- disappointments lead me down. And the last one, and, I, and this list probably could go on, but for my purposes, these are the ones that I was just like, let's just skim right off the surface of what I know of my life and your life, is false teaching and confusion. And I would put in this category what we were talking about earlier, that a reduction down to following Jesus is, have you believed at some point in your life enough to pray a certain unlocking your future in heaven prayer? All right, that was the first question. How are you doing? Great. We're, we're splitting this into two parts, so everything's going to be fine. Number two, are the disciples we see in the scripture the same type of disciples that you and I are? Like, don't you read the Bible and you sometimes you just put such a distance between what they're up to and what we're up to that you're like, they're a different category of, I don't know how, but they're a different category than us in some way. And so I can't really expect the vibrancy of what they're experiencing, the fullness, the power, the life, the love, to leap off the page and be true in the mechanics of my actual everyday life. So are the disciples that we see in the scriptures the same type of disciples that you and I are? Here's how I want to answer it, and you're going to love this. No. Yes and greater. Quickly, those three answers, okay? So no, we are not the same. We are not the same. And here's the way I mean that. One, they witnessed the physical life of Jesus in history in a way that you and I are not witnessing the life of Jesus in history. So there is a a real significant way that they are different than us. Two, they passed on their accounts as eyewitnesses, which is a crucial aspect it's told to us of why they occupied the, uh, the office of apostle in the New Testament church. You had to have seen Jesus with your eyes to be an apostle. That's why it's so crucial when the apostle Paul sort of actually fills Judas's spot instead of the guy they drew straws for. It's important that he has an encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road. He has to see and be taught by Christ himself. So... We have not seen Jesus with our eyes, right? Most of us have not seen Jesus with our eyes. But I want to remind you of the Thomas incident. Remember, one of Jesus' closest followers after the resurrection wasn't with his pals when Jesus happened to show up. Then later Jesus shows up. He's like, hey, put your hands in my wounds. See, I really am. I'm here. And then he says, you see and you believe. Blessed are those who don't see. And yet believe. So we're not the same, but Jesus says there's some way that we're blessed even more than those who saw because we're, we're not seeing and yet believing. The second thing I want to say of how we're not the same as them is that Jesus calls 12 disciples. And many of you will have painfully realized at points in your life, he calls no women to be disciples. What? What's up with that? Like that's a real problem for me. Except that 
when you actually dive into the scholarship around Jesus' life is that there were men and women who were following him, that it's most likely a group of wealthy women uh, and private business owners who were supporting Jesus' actual ministry. When the time comes for the resurrection, the gospel, for the very first time to ever be proclaimed to these apostles who were locked away in fear, who does he send but a woman who has been a resurrection? So we, we can't deduce that Jesus is anti-woman in any, or women in any way or that he's doing this in some sort of, um, you know, you know, misogynistic way, actually he is doing something really strategically important in the story of Israel and that he is, he is calling 12 and everyone who was a Jewish man, man or woman would have known Jesus by calling 12 was in some way reconstituting Israel by calling his 12 disciples. So he's continuing whatever the story God was doing with Israel, he's still doing it and one of the ways he's doing it is by calling these heads of the family... <laughs> These 12 tribes, again. So, is God replacing Israel? You want to get in some tricky theological ground? Me neither. So I'll just say, no, he is not. The testimony of the rest of the New Testament is that whatever else is happening is being grafted in to this larger story that God has been telling from the beginning. But the 12 disciples do represent Israel's vocation in a particular way. What was Israel called to do? They were called to walk with, God, with Yahweh. They learn his name. They learn what he's like. They're supposed to represent God in the world, to share the blessing of God with the whole world, to join in a particular specific way, like a seed is what holds the future tree kind of way. They're meant to, to be the embodiment of God's people in the world until the whole world is changed to be God's, God's, God's people. So it's really important to say God has not moved away from his covenant commitment to Israel. Jesus comes as Israel's Messiah. That's how he comes, as Israel's Messiah. All the lead up to his birth, all the Christmas stuff is about making sure we get that in accordance with the promises that God has made. So Jesus calls the 12 to say this. The story and vocation of Israel goes on in Israel's Messiah and in those who follow him. So, there's a lot more we could say about them, but I'm not going to say all of it now. One, the ways we aren't different is that uh, we haven't witnessed Jesus' life in the way they did, and we're not in, this, in, the, in the 12 in the exact same way that they are, the reconstitution of, of Israel's story in this, new, in this new era. Now for the yes. That was the no, now for the yes. Yes, we are the same as these disciples in this way. The very same Jesus that calls them is available to you right now in this middle school, even though it's raining and hot and I've sort of gone into some theology about Israel and you're like, what? That very same Jesus is available to you right now. How? In the testimony of the gospel accounts of his life, in the testimony of the accounts of these communities that were formed around him that radically transformed the Roman Empire in, in, in the aftermath of Jesus' life, and by the Holy Spirit right now, this very same Jesus, probably before this thing is over, maybe already has, will be speaking to you. <laughs> will be... You'll be having a thought and you know that it is, for, it, is, it is God inviting you to abundant life, that it is God inviting you to himself, to, to, to know him. So yes, we are exactly the same as these disciples in that this same Jesus is available to us and we're called to immerse ourselves in the story and life of Jesus in the gospels and immerse ourselves into living 
an, a dynamic equivalent of the life of Jesus in our everyday life in Brooklyn in 2019. And that's what I want to spend the rest of our time. You're like, we have no more time. That's what I want to spend the last part of this and the next part next week on. How can you follow Jesus even if it's hot in an auditorium? Are you guys hot? Be honest with me. You're not. I'm so hot. I'm sweating for Mother's Day. And my wife is just giving me the shut up and keep going sign. So I'm going to obey her because it's Mother's Day. So I said no, yes, and greater. Listen to what Jesus says. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son, and you may ask anything in my name, and I will do it. You want to know how much you are like those first disciples? He's telling them that they're going to go on and exceed everything that had blown their minds, the impossible things they had seen of God's kingdom breaking. And he says, you're going to do greater things than these. And the movement, like we talked about last week, the movement is a relational movement. Like God could have shown up on his own and like done fireworks in the sky for every city in Rome, but he sent this network of love out across the world. And he said, you're going you're gonna to love people the way I've been loving them. You're going to pray for people the way I've been. You're going to radically dip into your pockets and give generously to, 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 to show them what I'm, what I'm like. You're going you're gonna, you're gonna to give mercy and forgiveness when it's impossible to give. You're going to reconcile with communities that it's been impossible to reconcile with. There's going to be a diversity and a unity in your midst that's going to literally transform the world. You're going to go out into the world and do greater things than, than, even, I, than even I have done in your midst, right? Because Jesus had to be present with with them in physical body. And a lot of times when they were away from him, they kind of forgot and messed up and stumbled and denied him and all sorts of things, but he's gonna give them his spirit. Pentecost, my friends, is on the way. And we will do greater than these. How can you follow Jesus? Be with Jesus. Become like Jesus. Do what Jesus does. Like that's, the remarkably simple pattern that you see in the New Testament and that Jesus invites us into, that there is a, a past, a present, and a future tense of salvation in the kingdom of God that essentially comes down to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did, does until God has renewed the world and then we're going to party with Jesus and it's going to be fantastic. And we don't know beyond that and, and I'm glad that it's vague, but it's coming and it's something. Be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did. If your heart says, I want to do that, what do I do? I want to I try to break it down in the simplest possible components for you. And this is the part that I'll only be able to quickly hit in closing, and then we'll, we'll do more on it next week. But the crucial elements for following Jesus, and I, 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 think, I think I'm going to ask these words to do a lot over the next stretch, but is, is communion, obedience, equipping and companions. If you want to be with Jesus and, and become like Jesus and do what Jesus did, you're going to have to commune with Jesus, commune with God. You're going to have to obey what God leads you to do out of that communion relationship. There's going to come some points where you're going to need um, revitalization in what you learn or in, in, in spiritual breakthrough or in new relationships or in renewal around you. And there's going to be something that's missing from your life intentionally often or a gap that you miss growing up or some way that you need equipping. 
and you're going to need to be filled up with what you need for the next part of your journey, and, and then you're going to need companions along the way. You're not meant to do this alone. So this is a, a cycle. I had to put them in a list, and I probably should have put them in a circle, but this happens in, in a swirling, cyclical way throughout your entire life if you are a follower of Jesus, and if you want to engage in being a follower of Jesus, this is what you start doing. So let me just say quickly a sentence or two on each of them, and then we'll close and we'll do more next week, all right? One, communion. Whatever else Jesus' invitation to follow him is, it is an invitation to intimate relationship. It is an invitation to know and to be known, to see and to be seen. It is an invitation with a God who mysteriously knows every category and quadrant and fabric of your being, somehow in a Psalm 139 way, knows the knitting together of your very existence is saying, I love you all the way to the bottom. I know everything, your, your best, most highest potential and your worst, darkest secret. I know it all and I love you and I invite you in. It's why it's so important before Jesus does any of the miracles of his, of his ministry, the Father comes and says, you're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Do you know that that is the the heart of the gospel? For every one of you, before you do anything, God says over your life, you are my beloved and I am well pleased. I can wrap you up and embrace you. And it has nothing to do with all the plans and promises that you've, you've made or you're going to do, all your great intentions. Before you do any of that, I want you to be with me and know you're my beloved in whom I am well pleased. In uniting with Jesus in the, in the gospel, that declaration of the Father over your life becomes the declaration of your life. Like, let me tell you this. God, Yahweh, who shook the mountain you know, in Israel, he says over your life in the tenderest, sweetest, most powerful, mountain shaking and also quaking in your spirit kind of way, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. First and foremost, this is an invitation to communion. It is an invitation to intimacy, of course, in a way that's different than other relationships. Like you can, um, it involves adoration and worship. Like you see people as they get close to Jesus, they begin to worship him. Now, if I get close to Steve, this is my friend Steve, if I get really close to Steve, I'm probably not going to worship him. He's probably not going to worship me. That's a little bit different in human relationships, but as you get close to Jesus, you worship. This meal, communion, the Lord's table, the Eucharist that we go to every week is a habit of communion. It's a habit of saying every single week we're going back to Jesus. It's not just that we pray to prayer at some point in our life and our passport is stamped for heaven. It's that we're communing. The next is obedience. Here's what I want to say about obedience. One, we have a whole host of things to obey that we find in the word of God. You immerse yourself in the story of Jesus and you see a way of life that you begin to obey, right? But then there's a bunch of things I bet you'll find that show up in your life that don't show up in the scriptures, Like, should you leave this job or should you keep this job? Should you stay with this boyfriend or should you stay with this girlfriend? Or should you you engage with technology in this way or or that way? Should I engage in this creative endeavor or not engage in this creative endeavor? And I bet you won't find that if you read the Gospels over and over again. So there's a level of obeying the the actual story and the the commandments and the life of Jesus that we find in the Scripture. And then there's a pulling of that into the nitty-gritty details 
details of our life by the power of the Holy Spirit so we, by discernment, know what it is for us to obey in our time and place. And let me tell you this. You will not do anything more damaging to hindering the maturity, the fullness, the freedom, the love, the joy of your life than coming to a place where God is asking you to obey and saying, I refuse. Will he, will he still say, I love you, you're my beloved son or daughter in whom I'm well pleased? Absolutely. Is the gospel untrue in any way? No, it's absolutely by grace. But he is bringing you into a process of freedom, and he will do that by coming after anything that you have set up in your life to be a false or smaller God, something that has your allegiance, has your attention, has your affection, the things in your life that can demand the most of you and you won't say no to them. He's going to come after them and say, this is a, a, a bad substitute for me. I want you to let it go. And the choice of obedience in that moment will be utterly crucial, and it will determine, do you go on into maturity and fullness, or do you sort of stumble around and come back to the same exact choice later in life? The things that are missing in my list, um, like some of you are like, what about, pray- what about prayer, and what about service, and what about doing justice to our neighbors? All of those flow out of obedience. There's the Mary and Martha principle with Jesus, where Martha's busy like setting up the whole house and doing 40 things and making food and making the bed and, 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 and Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet. And Martha gets frustrated because she's like, I'm doing all this stuff for you, Jesus. And, and, and he's like, no, Mary chose what's best because don't you believe that if, if Jesus asked Mary to do anything from this point of connected intimacy, she would have done it and would have been the specific thing that was needed. But Martha was busy with many things. Some of you know what it is to be religiously exhausted. You've been busy with many things because we've forgotten the yoke of Jesus is easy and the burden is light. And what he's called us to is connected communion and obedience that flows from that. Equipping is when we fill in those missing gap points of our life. And I'm just going to come back to that next week, but... Sometimes there's something missing in your life or there's something that gets broken in your life or there's something that's weak or underdeveloped in your life or there's something that's confused in your life. And the word equipping in the New Testament is used in all of those ways to replace those exact things. And so there's, there's, a time, there's times of learning. There's times of spiritual breakthrough. There's times where you realize you're missing something and God provides it. Or before you even realize you were missing it, God provides it. And that doesn't happen alone. It happens with others companions you will know they will know you are my disciples by how you love one another you were never meant to do this this following Jesus alone so like I said we're trying to hit the very greatest hits of our church what's the kingdom of God how does Jesus set the parameters of of what life is all about how then what's the most in a relational kingdom what's the most important relationship it's the one that we have with Jesus how, how do you live that out? Be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what Jesus did. And then these, these are the components of that. We're trying in the most simple way to get at the heart of who we are as a community in, in, in a vision of how do we live if Jesus has come out of the grave like we sang all about on Easter. So my question to you, and, and, and this is the same question Jesus asks in each of those stories is, will you commit to following Jesus? Will you commit to following Jesus? Some of you, you've committed, your, you've committed day after day for 50 years to it, and I'm asking you again this morning, because it's what the church does when we come together, is we say, will you commit to following Jesus?
Some of you will be for the very first time, and it's like that first prayer of inviting Jesus into my heart. But it's so that I can follow him in relationship now and forever. So you sit with that question for a few minutes. Will you commit to following Jesus? And I'm going to pray for you, and then we'll, we'll go on from there. Heavenly Father, before you and before these, this, this people, I want to commit to you again this morning to follow you, Jesus. And I'm saying these things, and I'm longing for them, Lord. I want to commune with you. I want to do what you're saying. I want you to fill in the gaps that I have, God. I'm so aware of them. I don't want to do it alone, God. I pray you would cut through the loneliness and, and let us remember we're embraced by you and we can show that to one another. Help us, God. Help us to follow you. I pray you would come, Holy Spirit, and you would help us to reaffirm our commitment to you, Jesus. You would help some of us know that if we haven't ever started, we can this morning start, start following you, start walking with you, invite you all the way in. Wherever else we are on the spectrum, God, we can, we can commit to follow you again. So help us, Holy Spirit, help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.